Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. It is good to gather with you again this morning to to worship our God who forgives iniquities and sin and transgression. My name is Kelton. I also have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here of Stafford Baptist Church. If I haven't had the pleasure of greeting you yet, I would encourage you to please stick around after our service so we can all get a chance to, to know you. We now come in our service to our time of the teaching of God's Word, and this morning we continue in our ongoing sermon series in Matthew. We do plan for this to be our last sermon in Matthew for now, uh, getting back to our sermon series in Genesis next week. But today, if you would, please join me in Matthew chapter 18, where we will be in verses 21 through 35. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to, to grab one of the black Bibles uh, for you in the pew rack where you can find our passage on page 823. Matthew 18, 21 through 35, what to do about forgiveness. This passage is a continuation of the conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples, which we started last week. The, the conversation that we studied last week, what to do about sin, brings up, up the next sensible question, what to do about forgiveness. Forgiveness, as the Bible defines it, is hard. It is costly. I'm sure you can think of historical examples. The story we read earlier in our service, Joseph forgiving his brothers, despite all the harm that they had caused him. Or you can think of the stories of people like Corey Tenboom, willing to forgive the German guard of the concentration camp where she suffered terribly and lost her sister. Or maybe you think of, of stories that are more personal, friends or, or family that have suffered great evil but have been willing to forgive those that have committed those evils against them. I think of stories that are, are too painful to tell. What is it that Christ expects of us in having a heart to forgive those who commit evil against us? Where do we as his disciples get the supernatural ability to forgive and love rather than resent and hate? What does God's forgiveness of us look like? Well, these are the questions that Jesus turns to in our sermon text today as he continues to prepare his disciples and us for his imminent departure. Jesus, in this passage, will call on us to forgive others freely since those who refuse to show mercy will receive none. Before we read... I will lead us in a prayer, asking for God's help by His Spirit to hear and understand this word. So, so please pray with me once more. Let's pray. Our Father, as we come to You, we acknowledge that You are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, because You are a forgiving God, forgiving us of iniquity, transgression, and sin. Oh Lord, by your Holy Spirit, we pray that you would breathe new life into us. That we would come alive to the truths of your word this morning. Father, we pray as we have sung that you would give us faith for what we cannot see and what we cannot do in our own strength. To put away anger and to forgive as you have forgiven us. We pray this in the precious name of our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Brothers and sisters, read with you Matthew, read with me Matthew 18, starting in verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, that is Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, 
One was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will, I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and, and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger... His master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Well, what's, what's the main idea of this parable? Jesus' answer to Peter's question about the limit of our forgiveness if you're taking notes, here it is in one sentence. Forgive others freely, since those who refuse to show mercy will receive none. This passage summarized in one sentence. Forgive others freely, since those who refuse to show mercy will receive none. Last week in the First half of this chapter in conversation, we considered that, that Jesus' disciples are to beware the dangers of sin in ourselves and in others. The situation came up in verse 15 of a, of a brother sinning against us. So sin is expected even by Jesus in the community of the church. And Jesus taught us that our aim is to pursue and restore that sinning brother. And Peter wonders in response, how many times, how often are we to do this, Jesus? Well, Jesus teaches his disciples and us today, forgive others freely, since those who refuse to show mercy will receive none. Well, that's the main idea, but we will have no outline today, no points to speak of. But just so you know what to expect, we're going to reread the passage bit by bit explain what it means, and then apply it to our lives. If you need some kind of headings for your notes, we will reread these verses, and you can just reuse those verses as headings. So the first heading, the first verses to reread are verses 21 and 22. Read those again with me, 21 and 22. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Well, there is no break in the scene from what we studied last week. Peter, as he listens to Jesus' teaching on how we are to deal with sin, has a question. He's asking Jesus here about the limits of our forgiveness. And since we'll be dealing with forgiveness so much today, it's it's best to start by defining our terms. First, what is sin? What is it that needs to be forgiven in the first place? Saints, he is not talking about mistakes or mere matters of personal preference. Those are not sins that need to be forgiven. No, he is talking about sin, dem demonstrable violations of the standards of Scripture. We can define sin then as any lack of conformity to God's character, any violation of his standard of righteousness. As our creator, 
as God. He has the right to determine how we are to live, to establish the standards of our conduct toward both Him and towards all other people. And He has revealed this standard to us. Everything we need to know about how we are to live, God has told us, revealed both in nature, but particularly in His Word. In all of our sin, we sin first and foremost against God, but we also sin against others, breaking God's standard for how we are to treat one another. Well, if that's sin, what then is the forgiveness of sin? What is forgiveness? Forgiveness, we could say, is a commitment by the offended to pardon graciously the repentant from moral liability and to be reconciled to that person. There are a few parts there. Forgiveness is a commitment by the offended to pardon graciously the repentant from moral liability. They're no longer liable. And to be reconciled to that person. They are committed to being reconciled. That definition comes from the book Unpacking Forgiveness by Chris Braun. We'll unpack that more as we go through our sermon this morning. But, but that's what Peter is asking about. How many times are we expected to do something like that? Peter's question is an echo, as I said, of, of verse 15. Jesus has said previously, If your brother sins against you, and to paraphrase what he says following, pursue forgiveness. Okay, Peter says, I hear you, but how many times? How often are we to do this? Peter suggests, as many as seven times. Apparently, the common, common teaching of his day was three, that you were expected, obligated, in fact, to grant forgiveness to an offending brother three times, but no more. So Peter is actually being generous in what he suggests here. You can hear it even in his question, as many as seven times, he thinks that's a lot. Both suggestions, the common teaching of the day three or his suggestion seven, imply some kind of record keeping, either a mental or even written record of the offenses so that we can know where our obligation ends. They've gotten past three. They've gotten to their eighth offense. Is that what Jesus expects of his followers? An internal catalog of wrongs done against us Monitoring, monitoring their totals until you're free, finally, to treat others as their wrongs deserve. No. Jesus' answer is clear. I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Your translation might read 70 times seven because of, of some flexibility with how Greek suffixes work, but to get bogged down, is it 77 or 490, misses his entire point, so we can safely move on. He he is not saying that at the 78th offense or the 491st, your obligation to forgive is now fulfilled. Rather, his answer is simply a rhetorical way of escalating Peter's suggestion to the highest degree. His disciples should not be keeping count in any way. Rather, forgiveness for his disciples is to be an unlimited offer. Not seven, not 77, not to 490, but beyond. Peter's suggestion was generous, but still rooted in limiting forgiveness. And Jesus, by his answer, flips that assumption on its head. I do think it's encouraging To note, just as we did last week, Jesus expects there to be sin among his disciples. The the primary mark of a disciple of Christ is not their lack of sin, but their repentance from it. It is the commitment to take God's side against our sin rather than sin's side against God. And frankly, if you think about it, there are non-Christians who sin less overtly 
than even some Christians. And certainly Christians can and should sin less as they grow in Christ. But the plain teaching of this passage is that disciples of Christ continue to sin, but they continually repent, taking God's side against their sin. Well, we could, we could almost be done. Jesus has answered Peter's question. Not seven, but 77. But just like last week, Jesus has more to say. He wants to address the issue below the question of basic stinginess with forgiveness, a posture of record-keeping in his disciples. And so, for the bulk of our passage, he tells them a parable to explain their posture in forgiving one another. Parables like these are are simple fictional stories meant to illustrate one main principle. Not every detail represents something, but, but they teach one main lesson. And in fact, this parable is primarily a, a warning. Yes, it will show us the source of a, a supernatural power to forgive, but more than anything, at its end, its point is, is a warning against those who are unwilling or unable to forgive. Its point, as we started, forgive others freely since those who refuse to show mercy will receive none. So the first scene of our fictional story is in verses 23 through 27. Reread those again with me. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. So this, this parable of Jesus is, as he says in verse 23, is explaining the kingdom of heaven. The current and coming reign of God among his people through King Jesus. He is teaching what what life as a citizen submitted to the king looks like. It's like, he says, a king who wished to settle accounts. To settle accounts is to bring any outstanding balance to zero. Any money owed paid back. This, he says... The king will be doing with all of his servants. Well, in this parable, the king is obviously a divine figure, God. He is the only one and true sovereign of the universe, the Lord of all other lords, king of kings. And the servants stand for all of God's people, all people. They don't necessarily represent only people in the kingdom of heaven. This is just all people. All people are in some sense, submitted under the sovereign reign of God, even if they do not obey him. God will settle accounts with all people in the future. Jesus here is pointing us forward to final judgment, the time when all people will be called to give an account before another throne, the throne of the true king, an account of how they have lived, what they have done, either evil or good. No one will escape that accounting, no more deferring what is due. This parable is describing what you one day will be called on to do as well. Well, in this parable, as these servants are brought before the king to settle accounts, we are introduced to to one, the, the main character in verse 24. One who is brought in who it says owed him 10,000 talents. Well, this character is the one who the disciples of Jesus are to compare themselves to, to learn how they are to live. Your Bible probably has a note indicating that a talent is not something he's skilled to do. No, it's it's a monetary unit. It was worth, at the time, 20 years' wages of a laborer. 20 years of wages. 
And this man owes 10,000 of them. You can do the math in your head. 10,000 times 20. He owes 20,000 talents. Or sorry, 20,000 years. I'm sorry. 200,000 years. I can't do the math. 200,000 years worth of man's labor. And if maybe a man's labor is worth 40,000 a year, 200,000 times 40,000 would mean that this man owes the king a debt of $8 billion. But in fact, I think his point is even stronger. In cultural terms, a talent was the largest monetary unit. It's hard for us to compare because in the U.S. we only have two, dollars and cents, right? But they had even larger units. You might call them megadollars if we had them. And 10,000, the number he uses here, is the largest single number that can be expressed in Greek. They didn't have words like million or billion. They only had this that translates to 10,000. So in, in cultural terms, Jesus is saying that this man owes the biggest number we have of the biggest monetary unit we have. Biggest times biggest equals enormous. What's the biggest number you can name? It's a laughable number. And in fact, all the currency in the actual kingdom, the real kingdom of Jesus' day, totaled less than what this man owes to his king. Less than 10,000 talents. All the money in circulation of every individual, every institution of the day wouldn't be enough to pay this king back. We don't know how this man got into such a big debt. That's not the point. It's honestly not possible. But he has a very, very big debt. Enormous. And today is the day the payment is due. Verse 25 is stating the obvious when it says the man cannot pay. No one could. So the best the king can do in the circumstances is sell the man, his family, and everything in his possession with all proceeds from the sale going to the king. Try to make something back on his debt. Frankly, the most valuable slave would go for one talent. So to be generous, let's say this servant and his family and everything he sells or everything he has sells for five talents. He'd still be short 9,995. So the servant's request in verse 26 is simply impossible. He asks to have patience and I will pay you everything. No. Even if this king's patience could endure, full payment could never be made. Even the greatest patience of men cannot last tens of thousands of lifetimes of labor to repay this kind of debt. Can you imagine how this servant felt to be in this kind of situation, to have this kind of debt and it is due today? It's a story Jesus tells because we're meant to put our feet into it. To feel the way he does. Peter is the man. You are that servant called on to pay. Maybe you say it feels hard to relate to. We literally can only imagine. No one would practically let you ever get into this much debt. But imagine for a second a bill arriving in the mail. For some reason, you are responsible to pay the biggest number you can think of. No one else can step in and relieve it from you, even in part. Your life practically is ruined. You will lose your house, your cars. You probably can't afford food. Anyone who depends on you will find no help from you, and there is literally... No end in sight. Your only comfort is that one day you will die and the non-transferable debt will pass to nobody. Well, there, there is one other route for the debt to be 
forgiven. And that one ray of hope is what this king does. In verse 27, out of pity for him, the king releases this man from his captivity meant for sale and forgives the debt. He settles accounts unilaterally. He brings the outstanding balance to zero, not because any payment has been made. He absorbs the loss of $8 billion. This is what true forgiveness is. No longer demanding payment be made, but absorbing the loss in ourselves. And and notice, saints, the, the king does not forgive the man because of anything in the man. Because he was a particularly good and helpful servant. Because he owed him a favor. No. It is because of what is in the king. Out of pity for him. Out of mercy and compassion. Church, can you see why Jesus tells us this parable? He is not talking about our monetary debts. He is talking about the greatest Times greatest equals enormous moral debt that every person owes to God. We know this is true of every person because he applies it to every one of us in verse 35. You may have accrued your debt in a different way, but none of us can boast to another that we owe God any less. All of us live in God's jurisdiction, in His kingdom. We violate His commands when we commit any moral crimes. He is the person offended, and the enormity of our debt is proportional with His nature. Since God is infinitely greater and more valuable than any person, the the nature of our debt is going to be infinitely greater. By offending an infinite being, we incur an infinite debt. Even one sin, what we might consider the smallest infraction, puts us into a debt of 10,000 talents. Simply insurmountable. All of us, every person, owe by our sin a debt to God that we can never repay. Our only hope, because we can never repay, is for the debt to be forgiven. For God himself to absorb the cost and let us go free. And saints, this he does. For all who come to him in repentance, not because their repentance earn his forgiveness, but because of his pity, his mercy, his compassion. How wrong would it have been for the man to leave the king boasting that God had forgiven him? No, it was a gift, an undeserved gift. It is an understatement, brothers and sisters, for us to sing this morning, our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. And this is the unique testimony of the Christian gospel. God can forgive only because the debt we owe is paid by another. Other religions might point to us paying back the debt by good works. Or maybe just simply God's power apart from a sacrifice as the grounds for our forgiveness. But every other solution except the Christian gospel leaves the moral universe in imbalance. No, the debt we owe must be paid or God would not be just. We would live in a a universe that is ultimately unjust. And this is exactly what the true God has done in Jesus Christ. On the cross, the debt's owed to God by all who would ever trust in him, were transferred to Jesus' account. He receives our debts. What we owe to God for our pride, for our selfishness, our anger, our greed, our lust, was paid once and for all 
by Jesus. In three hours on the cross, Christ suffered more than any sinner ever will in hell for the sins of all who would ever trust in him. And this cancellation of our debt, he offers freely to all who will come to him for his mercy. Obviously, it defeats the entire point if we somehow needed to pay for forgiveness. That is not forgiveness. So no matter how insurmountable your debt to God feels, I can assure you that it is even larger than it feels. But that is still no obstacle to God who who forgives great times great debts through Jesus Christ. Friends, if you are in Jesus Christ, can you rejoice today? If you've had that very real bill canceled, can you sing to our King in love? How does that joy change how you treat others? And I ask if you have not received this kind of forgiveness, do you not now want to come and receive it? The only thing keeping you from it is a heart to receive it. Well, we could and we would be blessed to spend the rest of our morning meditating on this. But it is only half of the story. The point of highlighting the generous forgiveness of this king is to contrast it with the servant. It is surprising, in my opinion, that we don't have record of this servant skipping away. No account of his tears of joy or profuse thanks. No, instead we see see his heart and how he treats his fellow servant. So our next scene in verses 28 through the end. Starting again in verse 28. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do do not forgive your brother from your heart. Well, we study now the scene of this, this servant gone out from his king who forgave him. Having just received this life-altering news, free of an immeasurable burden, the servant goes out and finds a fellow servant. The second servant owes the first. It says in verse 28, 100 denarii. A denarii is a day's wage. So it's about three and a half months salary. Let's say $15,000. This isn't the smallest monetary unit. He could have said it was less. Not the smallest number they had in Greek. I think the point is that this is still a considerable sum. In other words, the sins that others commit against us, the debts among us, servants, they're not negligible. People commit real and terrible, terrible evils against one another. And to forgive Those kinds of debts is difficult. But the point of the parable, as large as that debt might be, it is nothing compared to what was owed to the king and was forgiven. Well, this second servant makes a familiar request in verse 29. He too kneels, he too pleads, he too asks for patience and too promises to pay. We have to assume that that with a similar request and a smaller debt, we know that what the king would do. 
what will this servant do? Well, in verse 30, he has none of the pity of the king. He throws this fellow servant into debtor's prison to pay what he owes. This is only justice. What is due, no no mercy. And of course, this is shocking to all who see it. I mean, it is perfectly within his legal rights to, to make this demand for the hundred denarii to be paid. But what's a few months' labor paid back when you were just forgiven thousands and thousands and thousands of lifetimes of debt? They're not shocked because what he does isn't legal. It's because it's so contrary to what he himself has received. The reckoning and the point for us starts in verse 32. These words of the king are in fact what God will say to all who do not forgive from our heart, Jesus says. Well, this man, this first servant who refuses to forgive the substantial but smaller debt is wicked. For the forgiven, a failure to display similar mercy is Wicked. The the words of our king make it plain. Those who have received mercy should have mercy on others. So the king is justified in his anger toward this wickedness. Complacency in the face of wickedness is in fact to compound wickedness. Well now the king's threatened punishment for the servant is carried out. The word for jailer there in verse 34 is literally torturer. Other translations put it, handed over to the jailers to be tortured. And this, it says, until he pays his debt. In other words, forever. He will always be in the process of paying, never arriving. By way of parable, Jesus is warning us of the torments of hell. Each and every person has a soul that will live forever, either in debt to God or forgiven because of his pity. Either your sins will be paid for by Jesus on the cross or by you forever in hell. There is no other way. It's gut-wrenching to read. But verse 34 forces us to consider the the terrible punishment that awaits sinners apart from forgiveness in Christ. I, I can barely think of it. So I lean on Jonathan Edwards to help us consider the torture that Jesus alludes to here. Edwards writes, Do but consider how dreadful despair will be in such torment. How dismal will it be when you are under these racking torments to know assuredly that you never, never shall be delivered from them. To have no hope when you shall wish that you might be turned into nothing but shall have no hope of it. When you would rejoice if you might have but any relief after you shall have endured these torments millions of ages but shall have no hope of it. Does that not awaken your conscience? This warning is for all of us, each one of us, according to verse 35. In this final verse, Jesus steps out of the parable to warn Peter and all of us that this is how God will treat us too. Verse 35, So also... My heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Jesus is telling us to forgive others not because we must. No, because we do this from the heart. It does not come from external obligation placed on us, but internal resolve from the heart. What this parable illustrates in 
crystal clear terms is that the servant did not experience a change of heart. The forgiveness that the king offered meant nothing to him and in the end is revoked. This isn't to say that God grants forgiveness and can take it back if we fail to show forgiveness. It is to say that those who truly receive the forgiveness that God offers to all will evidence it by the way that we freely forgive others. It is characteristic of people born of God to be forgiven as He Himself was to us. So saints, when your brother or sister sins against you, how often are you to forgive? How can you forgive time and time again? The evils that we suffer against what, from one another are not negligible. They are real pains, real evils. How often must you endure wrong? Consider, what is the worst someone has ever done to you or someone you loved? I say with absolute confidence, despite the greatest frequency and degree of human evils, whatever someone has done against you, their debt against you pales in comparison with your debt to God and what He has forgiven you of. And if God in Christ has forgiven you of such a debt, He has given you the power to do the same. People, those who call themselves Christians, but are unable or unwilling to forgive, should be warned by Jesus in the most serious way possible. Jesus teaches here that if we are either unable or unwilling to forgive, we should Question the reality of our forgiveness. In church, forgiveness is hard. The forgiveness that God freely gives through the good news of Jesus Christ does not remove the difficulty of our forgiveness of one another. But it does give us strength to overcome those very real difficulties. You can imagine it's it's something like experiencing, encountering a rocky and hazardous road as you drive the perilous path of the Christian life. The gospel does not remove the hazards on the road, those, those rocks, those cliffs. What it does is transform our tiny smart car into a rock-crawling jeep with a powerful engine and massive tires. In other words, the gospel transforms the vehicle of our forgiveness, our, our hearts, into something supernatural, something we are not born with, a new power to forgive. And remember, forgiveness, as we define it, is a commitment by the offended to pardon graciously the repentant from moral liability and to be reconciled to that person. We're going to spend our last minutes together unpacking forgiveness, what this commitment to others means based on how God, we learn in this parable, has forgiven us. And one of the most common questions about forgiveness, can we only forgive the repentant? Is forgiveness among us only for the repentant? I would explain it this way. As Christians imitating God, we offer forgiveness to all. Our offer of forgiveness is not conditioned on repentance. But the offending brother or sister must repent to receive our offer. You might think of it this way. It's like as if I sent a present to a friend and instead of them opening it, they just left it on the kitchen table. Has he truly received the present? Well, no, because he is refusing to open it and accept it. In the same way, as we offer forgiveness to those who sin against us, if someone has not repented, then forgiveness is stuck between the giver and the receiver. 
Christians, because of God's abundant forgiveness of us, should give the gift of forgiveness to all. But forgiveness as a transaction only happens when the sinner repents. Well, whether or not the offender repents, forgiveness is the power to be committed to at least four things where we'll close this morning. Four commitments of forgiveness. Our first commitment, the first commitment of forgiveness is a decision not to dwell on the sin, but to dwell on Christ. A decision not to dwell on the sin, but to dwell on Christ. When God forgives you in Christ, He promises not to call our sins to mind anymore. It's as we opened this morning in Micah, as if our sins are cast like a stone into the depths of the sea, never to be seen of again. When he looks at the forgiven, you and I in Christ, Ephesians 1 tells us that he sees us in Christ as holy and blameless. God himself dwells on Christ when he considers us. So in forgiving, we are committing to do the same to our brother or sister. We to commit to dwelling on Christ's forgiveness of us, remembering the immeasurable debt that we have been forgiven of, and of considering the same for our offending brother or sister in Christ. Now obviously, practically, brothers, sisters, we cannot control what we remember. But we can control with the power of a renewed heart and the Spirit's help to choose what to do with our memories. Memories and their hurt linger. But they do not control the Christian. Our orientation to those who have hurt us should be Christ-centered. We should dwell on them with the lens of Christ, not their sin. In Christ, they are holy and blameless. So our first commitment in forgiveness, a decision not to dwell on this sin, but to dwell on Christ. Our second commitment in forgiveness is a decision not to gossip, but to speak well of others. A decision not to gossip, but to speak well of others. In the package that we send the gift of forgiveness is a commitment not to tell others about the sin. Jesus' instructions in the previous passage taught us that we should keep others' sins as private as we can when we address them. But once repented of and forgiven, we are committed to not speaking about that sin with others. Our second commitment, a decision not to gossip, but to speak well of others. Our third commitment, a decision not to bring it up for their hurt, but to restore. A commitment not to bring it up for their hurt, but to restore. It may involve speaking with the brother about their sin, even after forgiven, between you and them, but not for their hurt, but to restore. When God forgives us, it means that he is committed to only do to us what is good. Jeremiah 32.40 speaks of the new covenant we have in Christ, saying, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. When we forgive our brothers and sisters, we commit to never using the past sin, that forgiven sin, as leverage against them to hurt them. It does not become a deficit in their account of which they must later somehow return to zero, always in our debt. Forgiveness is the commitment to balance the books now and forever. And therefore do only good whatever their sins, whatever their sins don't deserve, right? Our fourth commitment a decision not to allow this to ruin the relationship, but to look for opportunities to love. A decision not to allow this to ruin the relationship, but to look for opportunities to love. Forgiveness among brothers and sisters does not mean that all our relationships will immediately or even ever return to as they were before the offense. But it is a decision, a commitment to seek reconciliation and an opportunity for a new relationship. It is forgiveness 
that gives us the freedom to truly love those who have wronged us, to be kind and tender-hearted to them. As Paul exhorts us to in Ephesians 4, 31 and 32, where he calls on us to let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. When we are angry with a brother or sister, it is because a real or perceived offense, sin. And when we let that anger smolder into bitterness through which we regard and treat them, it is springing from a heart that has forgotten or has never experienced God's forgiveness in Christ. He calls on us to do this as God has forgiven us in Christ. In forgiving others, we are committing to put hatred away and putting love in its place because this is how God has treated us. Brothers, these four commitments all mirror how God has treated us. So brothers, sisters, is your heart willing, even eager to forgive in light of what God has done for you? Has the good news of God's forgiveness of your insurmountable sins changed your heart's posture towards others' sins against you? No longer your heart thinking about how great is their wrong, but rather how much greater is mine against God? Friends, the forgiven Forgive freely. Consider your own hearts because those who refuse to show mercy will receive none. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we pray that you would sober our hearts this morning, that we would consider them rightly. Father, we pray that you would sober us to the reality of the debt that our sins are against you. Lord, that we would not belittle our sin or try to sweep it under the rug, but Lord, in the light, we would see the great debt that we owe you. Lord, but more than only seeing the great debt, we would see the great provision that you have paid for by the blood of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ, that in him no debt is insurmountable, that they have been nailed to the cross, canceling the debt with its legal demands. Oh, Father, this is wonderful news. We pray as we receive this forgiveness freely, Lord, that it would so transform our hearts to freely offer this forgiveness to all, as great as their sins are against us. It's in Christ's name that we pray you would give us this power for the glory of Christ our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.